This is the MDT Podcast. A podcast for all healthcare professionals working with older adults. We are a multidisciplinary team educating about ageing. MDT. The MDT is brought to you by the Hearing Aid Podcast team. We focus on a different topic each week to work with you to enhance your knowledge to help you look after older people. Hello and welcome back to the MDT Podcast. This week we are going to be talking about diagnosing dementia. I am Ian Wilkinson. I'm a consultant geriatrician at East Surrey Hospital. He is. And I am Joe Preston and I'm a consultant geriatrician at St George's in London. He is. <laughs> Confirmed there. <laughs> See? And this week we're going to be talking through making the diagnosis of dementia. Mm. When to do it, how to do it, where to do it, what to do it with. Yeah. All those sort of things. It's a big question that comes up quite often, isn't it? Yeah. And we work with a faculty to develop these episodes. Mm-hmm. And the faculty members for this episode... Are Wendy Grosner, who's a nurse, Tracy CK, an occupational therapist, and Lucy Frost, who's a dementia nurse specialist. The MDT podcast. So we have some feedback from the last episode, Joe. Yes. And the first bit is from Alex Pitford. And what Alex said is that she's just listened to the first episode and she really loved it. And I thought that was just a nice bit of a reminder really that you can go back and they're still there yeah and that new people are finding it and yeah. starting to use twitter because i know alex and i'm quite surprised that she uses twitter so i did notice she hadn't used it very much yeah the next bit of feedback is from one of the physiotherapy associations with the catchy title of iptop wcpt <laughs> and they made a nice comment that they do like an mdt tuesday which is good which i thought was quite a nice phrase the mdt yeah. tuesday given that we come out on a tuesday and <laughs> um, we wanted to say congratulations to Liz Langdon who correctly guessed that the MDT was a sphygmonometer. So well done. An mm-hmm. MDT mug is winging its way to I have you. it just here. It's going to be on its way imminently, Liz. We hope you enjoy it. Send us a photo of you using your mug. The MDT podcast. So as different members of the MDT, cognitive impairment may present to you in various different ways. So we're going to have a chat to some of the members of our MDT and ways that dementia has presented to them or problems with cognitive impairment. I'm a consultant geriatrician. So what I want to know for people when I'm diagnosing dementia is a bit more information about how long the problem has been going on for, what sort of problems have been going on from the patient's perspective also from the relative's perspective and what impact this has had on the patient and is it caused and potentially have a lack of insight to their safety also want to know as to if they've had any previous investigations performed such as blood tests or any radiological investigations i also like to get as much collateral history just from the next of kin to see from their perspective how things have progressed over a period of time is it an acute event or is this more of a chronic event i'd also like to get an idea as to the baseline and how that's progressed over a longer period of time than just my brief episode with the patient I'm a physio and OT assistant. They can sometimes forget, like, a session that we've done the day before. They might not have done the exercises that we've given them. They might not be able to remember that they have gone to the toilet, they have done so much. They might even forget that they have what operation or procedure they've had and what's wrong with them, different things like that. I think you can see that it presents to a whole range of members of the MDT and all with maybe slightly different facets of the cognitive impairment. Yeah, and depending on the way that you're encountering that person the way that you're seeing them you may miss it entirely or it may be completely at the front of what you're doing yeah, yeah completely and that depends a lot on the deficit and that's one of the things we're going to talk through today is how that might 
percent. Yep. So I think we should probably start off by just having a think about what is dementia before we go on and think about how we go about diagnosing it. So dementia is defined by ICD-10 as a decline in memory, which is most evident in the learning of new information, although in severe cases, the recall of previous learned information may also be affected. The impairment applies to both verbal and non-verbal material. The decline should be objectively verified by obtaining a reliable history from an informant, supplemented if possible by neuropsychological testing or quantified cognitive assessments. I think that's quite a nice definition. I think we should probably just break it down. Yeah. Because it's kind of the whole episode in one, <laughs> one paragraph. There you go. You don't yeah, we're, we're done now, yeah. So it's a decline in memory, most evident with new information, although later on it has other effects. Mm. And it can be verbal or non-verbal. And you should objectively verify it. So you don't just take the person's word for it, the, the mm. subject. Because if they have a deficit, they may not have insight into exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. And so you may want to do some cognitive assessments or uh, more fancy neuropsychological tests mm. to prove that. So I think that's quite a nice definition. Yeah. So dementia is a progressive condition. And it's largely irreversible and it's caused by pathological changes to the brain that are not due to the normal ageing process. There are changes that you get in the brain as we get older and we might talk about those in one episode, mm. but, but they don't lead to dementia. Yeah, so it's not an inevitable part no. of the ageing process. No. I think that's something that's really key to get across to people that maybe not so familiar with dementia because a few people have said to me, um, student nurses or junior doctors say, well, isn't this just something that happens when you get older? And it's just, it's completely not. No. And we've all seen 90-year-olds, 100-year-olds who have no memory problems whatsoever. This is not inevitable. No. And I think we often talk about things after our, our sort of scientific definition from a practical point of view. I think for this case, just hearing the story of Augusta Dita is a good way of going through that. I think it, it highlights some of the problems um, and some of the symptoms that patients with dementia may present with. This is the story of Auguste Dieter, born in 1850. She married Carl Dieter in the 1880s and together they had one daughter. Auguste had a normal life. During the late 1890s, she started to become unwell, showing symptoms of loss of memory, delusions and trouble sleeping. She would drag sheets across the house and even scream for hours in the middle of the night. Carl could not take it any more. Being a railway worker, he had to admit her to a mental institution so that he could continue to work. On the 25th of November 1901, where she was examined by Dr. Aloise Alzheimer, he asked her many questions and later asked again to see if she remembered. He told her to write a name. She tried to, but would forget the rest and repeat, I've lost myself. Alzheimer concluded that she had no sense of time or place. She could barely remember details of her life and frequently gave answers that had nothing to do with the question and were incoherent. Her moods changed rapidly between anxiety, mistrust, withdrawal and whininess. They could not let her wander around the wards because she would accost other patients who would then assault her. She frequently responded, Oh God, and I've lost myself, so to say. She seemed to be consciously aware of her helplessness. 
Alzheimer called it the disease of forgetfulness. After many years, she became completely withdrawn, muttering to herself. She died on the 8th of April 1906. More than a century later, her case was re-examined with modern medical technologies, where a genetic cause was found for her disease by scientists. A mutation in the PSEN1 gene was found, which alters the function of gamma sacrates and is a known cause of early-onset Alzheimer's disease. So we're going to start off with how do you actually make the diagnosis? And who makes the diagnosis can vary and generally depends on your local setup for memory services. So it's a detailed assessment, can be by a geriatrician. In some areas, it's by old age psychiatrists and in other areas, it's neurology. There's just a huge overlap in the way that people present as to who you might get referred to in the first instance and and also who might be the best person to manage your dementia. The thing to say is that it's very tempting to try and diagnose people with dementia in hospital or in an acute setting or when they're presenting to you in in a crisis of some description. But actually, that's the worst time to make a diagnosis. And if we kind of reference you back to the delirium episode at the beginning of series one, I think it was 1.2, is that actually there's so much going on. People are so prone to delirium. Actually, you have to let that settle before you make a formal diagnosis. There are some caveats to that, which you'll kind of see as we go through here. And because history is so key, so if the history preceding that presentation is very, very clear, then you may be able to make it in an acute setting, but generally not. That's really well highlighted by um, the recent study in Age and Aging by Tom Jackson, Mm. who looked at patients who were delirious and then went on to assess their cognition later on uh, when the delirium had gone. But at the time of delirium, completed with their relatives two assessments about the patient's pre-morbid cognitive function. Mm -hmm. And so using an assessment scale that doesn't involve the patient, as it were, that's their relatives and and such like, like the AD8, you may be able to diagnose dementia in the context of delirium, but you probably shouldn't. Yes. I think. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, But we'll put a reference to Tom's study because it's a really good one and you should go and have a read of it uh, in the show notes. Mm. So I think really it's it's talking about history, isn't it? And it so comes down to the history of what's been going on. Um, So talking to the patients and getting their version of the story and their relative's version of the story and looking for a decline in their cognitive function. Mm -hmm. But also really, and I think the key thing for dementia is the functional problems that result from that. Mm. And that's part of the definition, isn't it? Is that it has to be cognitive impairment that is affecting your ability to live independently. Once you've taken the history, you then need to examine the patient. And so you're really looking at a cognitive exam Mm -hmm. uh, to get some objective measures and then a mental state examination. So you're looking for things like what is their mood? Are they depressed? Is that why the cognition's not so good? Have they got delusions or another mental health problem? Mm. And that's because things can present as though they are dementia, as a kind of pseudo-dementia, when actually they're not. So it's a bit like going back to that stroke episode that we did where there are lots of stroke mimics, things that look like it, that once you exclude all of those, then you can diagnose stroke. Yeah. It's a bit like that with dementia. There are quite a few things that can mimic it. So low mood is definitely one, isn't yeah, it? definitely. Um, and actually, if you treat the mood, then actually all of those attentional aspects of memory and, and thought processing are better and so actually that memory impairment is not there anymore. And then you should go on and do a physical examination Mm -hmm. looking for any other uh, physical signs or neurological dysfunction because 
Now, the, the cognitive impairment could be due to a stroke, for example, and so you need to, to go look for that. Yeah, so that helps you to kind of diagnose which type it might be. And then have a think about the medications that they're on um, and try and minimise the use of drugs, mm. um, particularly also thinking about over-the-counter medications, which can sometimes conversely affect cognitive functioning. Uh, we've mentioned before the anticholinergic burden yeah. in the delirium episode. So that's something just to bear in mind, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah, and kind of going back into that delirium episode, it's that thing that actually are we doing something to make their cognition worse and you should stop that first. And I know that some memory clinics won't see anyone if they are on something that has a really high anticholinergic burden, so something like oxybutynin or something like that. Actually, that can impair your cognition so much that actually stopping that is the first step of management. So. Yeah. And then you want to go on and do some investigations. So these are things like um, you'd want to do some routine blood tests. Again, looking mostly for reversible causes of cognitive impairment rather than there's a specific test that you can do for dementia. But looking for any cause that this person might have delirium. And sometimes delirium can last for weeks and sometimes months and have quite a chronic form. So kind of looking back and see if there was something uh, reversible or kind of driving a delirium that could be treated. What's on our dementia screen? What blood tests are we going to do? Uh, so in the first instance, you you do things like calcium. If you've got high calcium, that can make you quite delirious and quite yep. flat. Glucose. Yep. Looking for signs of encephalopathy, so liver function or anything that might be causing that. Thyroid function. Yeah. Hyperactive like, or hypo particularly. Yeah, I quite like a full blood count because I think anemia just makes you a bit tired. slowed up and a bit tired. And sometimes yeah. that can present with sort of a cognitive type dysfunction. Then there are things like B12 and folate, which if you've done them in the last three months or so and they're normal, then you don't need you to repeat them. them. So they're kind of chronic, but they are reversible causes of dementia. And then after you've done that, I think then you need to go on and do some imaging, don't you? And I think mm. the most important thing is that if you're going to diagnose somebody with dementia, to my mind, you need some imaging. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And the, the main thing that people usually do is a CT because it's widely available, it's commonly used. And again, it links back a bit to the stroke episode. You're looking for mimics, other reasons for the brain to have dysfunction. So a subdural hematoma, for example, or a tumour, which is causing dysfunction in an area of the brain, that kind of thing. But as well as that, you can get more detailed ideas of the areas of brain that are affected in particular types of dementia will affect the brain in different patterns. And I think you could do other imaging as well. Mm -hmm. And I think with the CT, you need to have multiple cuts so on the CT scan, so not just the normal sort of um, yeah. slices. You need slices that look at different directions. So you the can really... start at the face and go yes, backwards. We can't remember yeah. which plane it is. <laughs> but then you get to look at the temporal lobes in particular, yeah. which is the one the that's affected yeah. Yeah, in, in Alzheimer's particularly. And MRI is really useful for that. Yeah. You can also do some other imaging. Uh, so that was the nerd alert. Because so, there is other imaging that you can do, isn't there, Joe? Yes, but it's, it, it is not done that often. It's still quite new yeah. and it'd be more kind of research centres that are predominantly yeah. using yeah. this at the moment. If you are using it and finding it useful, then let us know and um, we'll share that. And of course, the thing we're talking about is the perfusion hexi... He, perfusion <laughs> hexamethylpropylenase... The what, sorry? Oxine. yeah, exactly. And um, it's a SPECT HP. scan, essentially. Okay. Yeah, it's a, a single photon emission CT, so a SPECT scan. And it'll help differentiate between Alzheimer's disease, frontal temporal dementia, uh, mostly, but also then those two and vascular disease. Yeah. 
it's sort of showing you really where the disease is active, I guess. Yeah. And I haven't seen it being used very often. I don't know if you have, but it tends to be in those really, really tricky cases where you're really trying to decide about treatment. Yeah. And some of the memory clinics, I think particularly the the ones I've seen it in are the neurology-led memory clinics. Yeah. are starting to use more and more spec scan. Okay. So we started talking about the different types of dementia that there are. Um, so we're going to go into those in a little bit more detail now. And the reason that it's important to work out which type of dementia it is, is that some dementias have specific treatments and others don't. But it's also useful to diagnose the subtype because it affects the type of support. Mm. that patients and their family will need and sort of helps them predict what may happen in the future. Yeah, anticipate what might happen. So the commonest type of dementia, Ian, is... Uh, that'll be Alzheimer's disease, Jeff. Yeah, about 60%. Named after Alois Alzheimer's, <laughs> who we heard about earlier on. We did. So about 60% of dementias are Alzheimer's dementia. And the predominant things that they present with are short-term memory loss, uh, visuospatial problems, um, and it tends to be steadily progressive... And that progression may be slowed by some medications. And that's one of the main reasons that we try and do the subtyping as well as looking for support. And the second commonest type of dementia, Joe? Would be vascular dementia. Yeah, a mixed, I guess. Yeah, so some people have mixed vascular and Alzheimer's. It's the, the commonest mix. And together those account for about 30%. I think vascular dementia is a bit overdiagnosed. Yeah. So the actual... Definition or criteria for diagnosing vascular dementia is that it's got a stepwise decline. It's the typical thing that happens and is quite often associated with strokes because it's just blockages of smaller vessels throughout the brain rather than a large vessel which would result in a stroke. And how do they present? Classically, you read the books and it says they present with a stepwise decline in function. I'm not sure it's always stepwise myself, but they do present with gait and balance problems, so they present falling over with cognitive impairment. Mm. And because it's vascular, it can affect any brain territory, so actually that's why you get this really broad presentation. It doesn't necessarily have to be that way. Yep. Um, but you do see people kind of steadily decline. Then there are other types, aren't there? Uh, we'll just touch on a couple more. So there's, yeah. there's dementia with Lewy bodies, mm-hmm. and that's one of the Parkinson Plus disorders. So they have Parkinsonism mm-hmm. and particular type of cognitive impairment with quite a lot of hallucinations yeah and often what you say is if the diagnosis of parkinsonism and the cognitive impairment come within about a year of each other they're often called patients with dementia with lewy bodies as opposed to patients that have parkinson's disease and the cognitive impairments comes many many years later people term that parkinson's disease dementia yeah in reality they're relatively similar conditions and frontotemporal dementia is the next commonest I guess and that may present to a speech and language therapist with speech problems there's an association with motor neurone disease in younger adults they tend to be quite mobile quite active patients typically and they quite often have a lack of insight into their cognitive impairment and they often because the frontal lobes are affected have quite marked executive function problems Mm. so planning tasks so sometimes OT may be the person that picks that up or is is involved at the time yeah. of presentation, and there are some there are some other dementias in younger patients. Um, so there's some of the familial Alzheimer's type dementia presenting mm-hmm. in very young people, and CJD also mm. Creutzfeldt Jakob disease uh, presents with a cognitive impairment, as does Huntington's as well, I guess, uh, both in younger people. So that's your sort of framework for thinking about what type of dementia people might have. Mm. And then I guess the kind of question is, well, what, what are we going to go and do next? Yeah. 
you need to think about does the patient want to know the diagnosis? Do they mm. want you to? We're talking about diagnosing dementia. Does this person want to be diagnosed with dementia? Are they, they ready for this? Um, are their relatives ready for this? So I think you need to sort of skirt around the potential diagnosis to start with mm. and just sort of have a feel for... Gauge the level of information the, that they yeah, want. Yeah. yeah, I think it's kind of going back to the principles of um, breaking bad news, really. It's everybody's different on how much they want to know and how involved they would like to be. And I think that, you know, this is a diagnosis of a progressive illness. You need to be quite sensitive about that. Not shy away from the the sharing of that information, but but being sensitive to what people will want. Yeah, and who they want to know. Yeah. Next on our list of things that we would do when we're trying to diagnose the subtypes after you've taken that history is doing some kind of cognitive assessment. Um, and you want something that's going to look at lots of different cognitive domains. Um, most of the common tests do. Uh, we'll talk through what those tests are in a second. But the things that they're assessing, most of them, are attention and concentration, which is the thing that's most affected in, in delirium. delirium. Orientation. Mm-hmm. Short and long-term memory. Praxis. Language. And executive function. And as we said, any of those can be affected in dementia. And where classically Alzheimer's would affect the short-term memory first, it's not always the case. So you might pick up a language problem or a praxis problem first. So, yeah. so uh, Terry Pratchett is an example. He had posterior cortical atrophy. And so he had sort of particular problems with like a praxis, I think, um, and sort of working out what objects are and what they do. So in the show notes, we're going to leave a, an article in there about visual focusing and how visual focusing and tracking is different in patients with posterior cortical atrophy, which is just really interesting because actually it's it's almost a visual manifestation of a dementing process, not, not memory-based to start with. Mm. Often the dementia's at the end of the disease, they often all look quite similar, but actually the beginning and the beginnings mm. of the disease often look very, very different. And that's a subtype of or a particular presentation of Alzheimer's disease. Yes, yeah. And this is just reminding me actually that uh, we talked about some of this in the communicating and cognitive impairment episode as well. We did, yeah. In a little bit more detail on what parts of the brain affect which functions. Yeah. So and you may want a bit of revision, <laughs> head back head there. Head back to that one, yeah. And you may want to do some formal sort of neurocognitive assessment from a neuropsychologist to unpick some of the the variant subtypes, yeah. the rarer stuff. You yeah. tend to do that with people that they've got quite subtle deficits. They're a little bit atypical. So they're not something you use for everyone. No. So the kind of test you would want to use is you want to use something standardised so that you can repeat it down the line or if someone else is seeing this person next, you have something to compare it to in the future so you can kind of track progression. But as we said before, the assessment tool is only one part of the assessment and the collateral history is really important. I suggest to people to look at the FAST staging system. Mm -hmm. Um, that's F-A-S-T, for dementia, because it goes through an Alzheimer's disease in, I think, seven stages. But starting from the first stage, working through, I think it's a quite a good guide for taking a collateral history. And so it just nicely sort of gives you some of the prompts and things to ask, just to dig a little bit deeper than some of the stuff that you may find that on the surface somebody's managing quite well, but actually if you dig a little bit deeper... Mm. It's things like how are they managing their finances? Yes. They're quite particular questions. Who writes the shopping list? How do they actually get the shopping, the shopping list? Exactly. So we'll put a link to both an article about the FAST and also the staging tool itself in the show notes. So moving on then to the formal testing that you can do, there are several options out there. We're going to concentrate on some of the 
more common ones so that MMSE, other brands are available, Mocha and Adam Brooks. Yes. And I think before you use any of them, you just need to think about what's going to affect the performance. Absolutely. So, for example, you know, if you tried to do a cognitive assessment on me in the morning before I've had a coffee, (laughs) I'm not going to score so well. If you try to do one first thing in the morning with someone who's a night out, they're not going to score so well. Yeah. Thinking about their level of education before, um, so asking what age did they leave school? Did they ever learn to read and write? Because that's going to affect this test hugely. And we can't assume that everyone has, and sometimes that can be a problem. So the first one is the Falstein Mini Mental State Examination. Mm -hmm. It's often shortened to the MMSC, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Which is a 30-point scoring system. Yeah, and it measures lots of those um, areas that we were talking about earlier and breaks them down and... It takes about five, ten minutes to do. It's out of 30 and a score of above 28 out of 30 is considered normal. Anything less than 23 is, you know, quite marked cognitive impairment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Next is the MOCA or the Montreal Cognitive Assessment, which I quite like. I like it. But it's only validated for mild cognitive impairment. It is. Which we will talk about in a minute. Yes. Um, having said that, because it's a little bit more detailed, well, it's much more detailed than the MMSE, it can give you particular insights, particularly if people have quite high um, educational achievements. It just pushes people that little bit further. Yeah. So I find that even though it's only validated there, it gives you lots of u- useful information. I think it's nice because it also breaks down on the page when you print it out the different cognitive domains. Yeah. So you're clear what you're testing at, at what time. Which is quite yeah. So again, it's out of 30. It is free you can get it online where technically the mmsc is copyrighted mm-hmm. so don't print it out don't print it out and there's a blind version available which yeah. i think is really useful. and there's lots of other language versions as well mm. and instructions which is quite nice so that it tells you it almost gives you a script as to what prompts you should be giving yeah so that because there's always a, a temptation isn't there it's like when people in the amts people give half points you know yeah. there are no half points it's right or it's wrong <laughs> but with all of these things you kind of you know you want the patient to do well is kind of your your starting mm. position, and so you, it's very hard, isn't it? It's you, hard you have to, to really to hold back yeah. and, and 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 not base the scoring on how much you like the person and want them to do well. Yes. <laughs> I think to be yeah. quite objective yes. if we can. Similar cutoffs for the MMSC: mm-hmm. twenty eight and above is normal for for most people. And but as we say, the use in that really is is identifying the areas of deficits. Yeah. And then finally, the Addenbrooks, which is very long. Yes, hundred questions. Includes the MMSE as part of it. As just part of it. Yes. But there is a shorter format now. Mm. And it will help suggest a subtype of disease to you. Mm. So whether or not somebody has an Alzheimer's or a frontotemporal or something. Yeah. Um, but it's good, but, but it takes a lot longer. It's good, but yeah, you have to have t- time to do it. It's, yeah. it's usually in a memory clinic yeah. setting is where you'd most commonly use that. There are some other shorter screening tools out there that are used quite commonly. Um, things like the SIXIT uh, the six cognitive impairment tests it's got six items. Yeah. Um, the GP cog. Yeah. General practitioner assessment of cognition. Yeah. Um, and it kind of depends which one you use as to where you are, who you are, what you're up to. Yeah. You know, I think the more important thing is to do some form of assessment if you think someone yeah. has a cognitive impairment. Exactly. If you have a ten minute appointment in GP land, you are never going to be able to do an Addenbrooke's. No. So picking one of the shorter things and then referring on if there's an issue. Is, is the right thing. Um, we're going to put a link in the show notes to an article that summarises the assessment scales and dementia so you can look through and kind of work out which one you would like to use in your practice. 
And there's another thing that's not an assessment scale, but mm-hmm. I think is really useful. Gives you lots of information. Yeah, is the clock drawing. Yes. Um, it's simple. It's very quick to do. Yeah. Um, but it's always tricky to remember how to score it. Yes, I have to look it up true. each time. Yeah, me too. Um, it's a good, simple, quick test. Often I use it in addition to something else. Yeah, because it, it tests visual spatial. Can they draw the clock? Their executive function, can they plan where to put yeah. all the numbers? Their attention, can they remember what they're yeah. doing? The language, because you use 10 to 2. So can they decipher that, that what that means? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it is a good one. But yeah, again, you need to use it a few times and make sure yeah. it works for you. And then briefly, we're just going to talk about mild cognitive impairment, which we've mentioned a couple of times throughout the episode. You know, some people um, describe this as early dementia. Some people say it's part of normal ageing. I think the jury's still out a little bit. I think a few years ago, people really thought that mild cognitive impairment was the precursor to dementia. But then lots of people have it and never go on to progress so when we say, develop anything else. When we say mild cognitive impairment, mm. so we're meaning... Someone whose cognition is not normal, mm-hmm. so they're not scoring 30 out of 30 on their MMSE. They may be in the, you know, 25s, 26s, yeah. but they don't have a functional problem. Yes, yeah? absolutely. Okay. As you say, the jury's still out a little bit, so that may be more a part of normal ageing, if you like, yeah. um, because it doesn't seem to be necessarily pathological and doesn't progress. It's super difficult, isn't it? Because you don't know whether or not, because you're doing a single snapshot assessment of cognition, you don't mm. know is this the beginning of a dementing process? They've yeah. just not developed any functional problems yet. Or is this just the way this person is at this point in their life? Yeah. You know, this is the normal ageing for this person. And it's never going to get any worse. You don't know. No. And I think having an open conversation with someone about that and saying this is something we need to watch and wait for. And if this is something that you encounter, for example, in GP or in the community, that actually these are people you probably want to see a few times over a certain time period to see if things do progress, because yeah. it may be the beginning of a dementia. Same as if someone's had an episode of delirium, they are more likely to go on and develop dementia in the future. Those are people to kind of keep an eye on for a little while just to see which way these things these things are going to go, but not necessarily someone that you need to follow up. And I think that highlights term. nicely also the role of the MDT, yeah. actually, that it really doesn't matter who in the MDT is doing a cognitive assessment, more that an assessment and a thought process as to whether or not someone has cognitive impairment mm. is, is going on. And there was a, a study looking at occupational therapists and their role in terms of assessing patients' motor and processability yeah. in a memory clinic. It's a small study, only 19 patients, but it looked at the same assessments, so some of them done in the clinic and some of them done at home. Mm. And unsurprisingly, it showed that if you're doing assessments, performing them in the patient's usual environment has an impact on their ability to perform the activities of daily living. Mm. So if you are doing an assessment in a kitchen, people are much more likely to perform well in their own kitchen than the kitchen that's laid out completely differently Mm. in the hospital ward. So does that mean that they were more likely to have cognitive impairment if they couldn't do it outside their own environment? That's a good question. I don't know. know. If anyone knows, let us know and tell us. I certainly had a patient some time ago, who in hospital was very, very out of sorts and really quite confused. And when she was taken home, she walked in the front door where they did a, a like a discharge home visit and she sat the therapist down in her house. She put uh, Daniel O'Donnell on the CD player. <laughs> and always a good she, start. Always a good start. She made them a cup of tea. She got them biscuits 
and very politely after about 10 minutes looked at them and said I think it's time for you to go now I <laughs> appear to be settled in quite happily and she was just fantastic in her own environment in her own pattern everything settled um, into place but out of her environment it's, it's sort of like a, almost a, a compensated dementia she had dementia but she was compensated mm. in her own environment when she was removed from that environment all of those uh, supportive mechanisms all, are gone. Yeah, and she suddenly decompensated and, yeah. and she was, she was you know, quite poorly for quite a while as a result of that. Yeah, and that's a real challenge, isn't it, when you're in hospital and you see people that are confused and you wonder how they'll ever manage at home. But actually before they came in, they did and they were. And yeah. that's yeah, something we don't see and I think that we're quite risk averse to. Um, but it's, it's a difficult, mm. difficult chance to take. But I think one we should be making more. So just finally, to wrap up the episode, we're going to talk briefly about medications for dementia. We're going to keep it brief because we've got an episode coming up later in the series talking about early intervention. So we're going to touch on medications a bit there as well. One of the reasons for diagnosing the subtype of dementia is that there are drugs licensed for Alzheimer's dementia. And those are acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. So denepazil, galantamine, rivastigmine. And they're all um, options for mild to moderate Alzheimer's dementia and recommended under NICE yeah. guidance. And then there's memantine, mm-hmm. which is another drug that works in a different way, which is licensed for moderate to severe dementia. Yes. And there's some really good information about that kind of thing on the Alzheimer's disease website. And there's also some really excellent information for patients and their carers that you can direct them towards or print off for them. Uh, it's an excellent resource. Yeah. It's really, really good, isn't it? Yeah, yeah so um, go there yourself and send other people. So we've talked about what dementia is. Mm-hmm. We've talked about some of the differences between Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia and some of the rarer subtypes. We've talked about the importance of taking a really good history. Mm, history's key. History's key. And we've talked about some of the common diagnostic and screening tools. Yeah. And I think we've sort of hinted at, but not really focused a lot on, but the implications of the diagnosis for patients and their relatives. And that's something that's really important when you're talking to somebody early on in their disease, disease course. Yeah, disease process. The MDT Podcast. Well, it's the time of the week for the MDT teaser. Yeah. The catchily titled MDT Item Guessing Game. Mm. So we're going to read a series of increasingly more simple clues yep. about an item that a member of our MDT might use. Yes. And I think we are one all. I can't remember. I think we're one all. Okay. I might be wrong. I'm probably wrong, but we'll go with one all. (laughs) Right. Okay. Do you want to go first? Shall I go first? All right. So, Joe. We're at episode four, so we can't be one all. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Joe. I'm ready. So, for your first clue, Mm. this is, or this item, is an addition or a change to a very common MDT item. Uh, no, next clue, please. Um, in name, it is very similar to one of the top ten sports in the UK. A foot splint? No. Thinking football. Football, yes. Okay. No. All right. Um, it comes in a left or right type. It is sided, if you like. Um, don't know. Okay, for your fourth clue, it distributes pressure... Over the palm. Splint? No. I don't know what sport that would be. Okay. Final clue. Javelin. Yes. <laughs> Final clue. It is a type of handle. Is it a Fisher handle? 
It is. Yes. Yay. Which is the handle that you put on the top of a walking stick for someone's got rheumatoid arthritis. Mm. One that looks sort of all curved and ergonomic. Ah, uh, okay. So fishing is one of the top ten fishing, sports. Yes, yes. Interesting. Who knew? <laughs> that clue did not help me. <laughs> so I stand a chance this week. <laughs> all right. So your first clue. Yep. This item has a similar name to an American city. So I've had these similar name things from you before, and none of them are very similar. Um, this one really is. Is this a Miami J collar? Oh, yes, it is. It is. Oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> awesome. Okay, I'm going to tell you my other favourite clue, <laughs> which was the instructions for the application in the manual say, size it up, scoop it up, snug it up. Mm. <laughs> I should have led with that. So my Miami J collar is... It is a brace that you use on the neck. It's cervical support. Cervical support. Is, the, is the, the main name of it. Ah, so I win. Uh, I knew that was an easy one. There we go. Oh, well. I'll let you have it. Thank you. So, as we said at the beginning of the episode, Liz Langdon guessed the MD teaser, so now we have a new one for you. We do indeed. And this is one of your clues, Joe, isn't it? It is. And this is for a brand new item. In ideal circumstances, this should be applied twice a day. So if you think you know what it is, let us know using the hashtag MDTeaser. Or via Twitter, and we are at MDT underscore podcast. Or on Facebook, uh, forward slash MDT podcast, or you can email us through the website. And in each case, that's tea like a cup of tea. And in our next episode, we'll be talking about UTIs. And then the one after that, we're talking about depression in older people. The MDT will reconvene in two weeks' time. Dr. Wilkinson has previously received funding from Astellas and UCB Pharmaceuticals for delivering educational activities. The MDT Podcast is a hearing aid podcast's Big Things Media production. Additional music by Kevin McLeod. This podcast has been made possible from a technology-enhanced learning grant from Health Education England, spreading education throughout Kent, Surrey and Sussex. For more information, visit thehearingaidpodcasts.org.uk. 